1: plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to Government vs. the Robots, the fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will affect politics in the future. My guest this week is Samuel Woolley. Samuel is a professor of journalism at the University of Texas and author of the book The Reality Game, which looks at how the next wave of technology could finally break the truth. Our conversation starts by asking, what is computational propaganda? We ask what the latest technology is behind bots and how you can spot them online, how companies and politicians are using geo-propaganda, and why you can't fight the firehose of false content with the water pistol of truth. Sam, thanks very much for being here uh, virtually today. It's great to have you on the show.
0: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
1: I wanted to ask before we kick off, in the start of your book and in a talk you gave, I think, in Seattle, you mentioned a guy called Phil, and you'll know who I'm talking about straight away. Mm-hmm. Um, and you you thank mm-hmm. Phil for helping you to become a researcher and enabling you to be yourself at the same time. Um, and I wanted to ask before mm-hmm. we get started, and it's a moment of kind of it's a kind of question of intrigue from my from my part. Um, what did you feel was tension between being a researcher and being yourself?
0: <laughs> That's a great question. Um, yeah, it is a bit cryptic, isn't it? Well, look, you know, sometimes I think that being a researcher being a scientist being and in my case being a social scientist um oftentimes there is a call to be as objective as possible to be when you're doing empirical work to try to leave your emotions and your uh, cultural background um, behind in order to look at things clinically uh, and produce something that is untouched by the, by your own your own sort of mores. But I think um, what I've learned throughout my scholarly career is that that's just really not possible uh, to be very blunt. Um, You know, there's this idea of positivism or post-positivism, which is kind of exactly what I was talking about, this kind of idea that you should try your very best to separate yourself from your your background when doing research in order to not flaw the results. Well, what I'm talking about in in that introduction is, is sort of saying that, you know, Our cultural background, social experiences, uh, the things that we've gone through as people, uh, as researchers or whatever our, our careers are, those things inform the way that we do our work and that we should be more reflexive, more upfront and more honest about the ways in which we... Um, have been molded by society or what our thoughts are and how we're attempting in some cases to mitigate those biases biases, in order to do the research. Um, what I'm talking about when I talk about Phil in particular is that Phil, you know, he trained me really well to do empirical work, to be a researcher and to think about things uh, clearly and to try to be unbiased when I could be. But he also really made it possible for me to center uh, work focused on the people people who produce propaganda systems in my research. And that's, that's really been like, like, I think like the focus of what I do. Phil and the computational propaganda project at Oxford, uh, where I was the research director, they've moved into a number of different kinds of research. One of which is more quantitative research, looking at the ways in which, uh, propaganda, fake news, uh, which we should actually call false news. And, um, Other things flow on Twitter in a given amount. My work really like has focused to date on thinking about the fact that there's always a person behind a propaganda campaign, there's always a person behind the bot, and to really bring that uh, humanistic focus into my social science work and to be more of an ethnographer, more someone who talks to the folks that are uh, on the front lines thinking about how to manipulate systems and also the people who are working to fight back.
1: That's a great answer. And I wonder if you could tell me, before I ask you to tell me what computational propaganda is, which is coming, and a question I'm sure you've answered many times, um, I of just course. wonder when the first moment, did you have a kind of eureka moment where you spotted something and, and, and it really woke you up to exactly how uh, social media platforms were being manipulated?
0: Yeah, so um, when I first joined the PhD program at the University of Washington back in 2013 and um, started actually working at that time with Phil, who as my dissertation director, I was working with a team of people that were studying what, what had been going on in the Middle East with the Arab Spring. Uh, Phil had just written a book called The Digital Origins of Dictatorship and Democracy. Uh, there was actually um, another couple of colleagues in computer science and, uh, or, sorry, information science, who were studying the ways in which bots, uh, so automated, pr- automated profiles on social media in this case, um, were being used to manipulate public opinion in Syria. And it was really then that I understood. Understood that. Wow, you know, social media platforms aren't just these really useful tools for democracy. Of course, I'd followed like you know Clay Shirky's conversations about democratic social media and Malcolm Gladwell's corresponding conversations about the ways in which slacktivism was a problem and the and the work of Evgeny Morozov sort of echoing those kinds of sentiments from Gladwell, but. It wasn't until I started to learn from my colleagues about what had been happening during the Arab Spring that I realized that there was a co-option of the tools by powerful political actors like the government in Syria, Bashar al-Assad, government in Egypt, um, government in Saudi Arabia, in attempts to not just uh, drown out – opposition and protesters with spam but also to actually directly attack opposition using social media and what i realized is like yeah you know like any other media tool the powerful have realized the ways in which they can use social media as mechanisms for control and
1: so that was that was the beginning of your journey when did you first land Mm. on the term computational propaganda or did you and and um how do you how do you define it in your work
0: sure so when i first joined the phd program that i had mentioned i start i w- i took a class uh, actually again from phil and you know obviously phil howard uh, has been really um influential uh in my in my work and my research i learned a lot from him but i began writing a paper that actually ended up becoming a paper that's been published called automating power that you can find it it's open access on the journal first monday and i uh, was basically tracking news reports on the use of, of social bots, manipulative bots, uh, political bots on social media being used by governments in attempts to manipulate people around the world. And so it was my first attempt to sort of catalog what was going on and make sense of it through media reports. During that time, Phil had also written a couple articles on how bots had been used in the Middle East uh, to manipulate public opinion. And so the two of us started thinking, hey, maybe you know, it's time for us to write a grant proposal and start Doing some concerted research on this topic, uh, of course, you need to have some funding to do the research. So, we discovered this program called the NSF EAGER program, which is a which is an early stage um, exploratory research grant that's collaborative. And so, we approached some some colleagues in the information science program and HCD, Human Centered Design and Engineering, um, at University of Washington, and we came up with this proposal at the time that we called computational propaganda and. So that was really right away when I started my my doctorate, that term kind of came about uh, through the group. And... We define computational propaganda as the use of automation and algorithms over social media systems in attempts to manipulate public opinion. It's basically just a fancy way of saying uh, using bots and other coded mechanisms to try to get people to, to do what what you want them to do. And so um we saw governments around the world and and a lot of other groups frankly as well like not just governments but but super pacs in the united states and extremist groups like isis making use of these tactics on social media and so we got a grant actually from the National Science Foundation, uh, that Eager grant I was talking about, and uh, it was called the we called it the Computational Propaganda Project. And for the first year or two, we were at the University of Washington, and then eventually uh, Phil ended up um, getting a job offer from Oxford, and so the project moved there, and I moved with him, and we started the Computational Propaganda Research Project at Oxford uh, with a with a larger grant from the European Research Council for uh, to support us for five years, and the rest is kind of history now. And
1: in that time that you've been sort of studying bots, can you talk me through a kind of quick overview of how the sophistication of the use of bots has developed,
0: if it's developed, over the last five or six years? Mm-hmm. Sure. So the first thing I should say is that bots are ubiquitous online. Um, over 50% of all web traffic comes from bots, according to some estimates. Uh, and bot is just basically a shorthand term for an automated software program used to do work online that a person would otherwise have to do. And they've existed since the web was around. Um, but what we're really talking about here is the use of malicious social bots, well, what what uh, my colleagues and I call political bots, these front-end facing uh, uh, actors on semi-automated actors as we call them on social media that people build in order to look like real people to manipulate public opinion um, and really what bots are, are constructed to do is amplify particular kinds of content uh, in order to make it look as if it was more popular than it, than it is um, so they do what I, what I call in my next book the, the book's called Manufacturing Consensus and a riff on Herman and Chomsky's work they create the illusion of popularity for a politician or an idea and can push that politician or idea into the public sphere through this kind of seeding and fertilizing. They, bots also were massively used to magnify uh, trolling campaigns, including state-sponsored trolling campaigns, which my colleagues and I have written on. The government's wage against journalists and opposition folks. Um, I guess, you know, one person wielding one social media account is powerful, but someone wielding 10,000 accounts is even more powerful. Uh, To get to the crux of your question though, bots have absolutely evolved. And so when we first began looking at bots uh, in 2013, most of the bots that we saw were what I would label dumb bots. They're just very simple. Um, You could tell that it was a bot within like two minutes of of trying to interact with the account on Twitter. But the dumb bots were useful in succeeding and doing what they needed to do because there was millions of them on Twitter and on Facebook. And the goal oftentimes wasn't to have these bots talk to people and change their minds. It was through sheer numbers to trick the trending algorithms on those sites into thinking that something was popular when it actually wasn't. And then the company would recurate that information and show it to people. An example of this would be like David Hogg crisis actor um, trend that appeared on YouTube right after the Parkland shooting in Florida. And that was largely propelled by bots, which, which you know wouldn't have otherwise appeared, but then got picked up by a a lot of news media organizations and written about. Um, now, what we see with bots is a trend towards m- more personalization, more functionality in terms of conversation, uh, with, uh, with more ubiquity of machine learning and AI and, and cheaper access to it. It's possible now to build bots that are more conversant. Also, there's a lot of combining of bots with human labor, what we would call cyborg accounts, in order to have the bots kind of be the, the bait and hook to get people to talk to to a given account and then to have a person step in and have the conversation so there's there's multiple combinations we're seeing now
1: and what would be the obvious signs of a kind of i think most people most people that listen to this show probably would consider themselves reasonably capable of generally spotting um, aspects of computational propaganda but i am increasingly aware that that might, might not be possible that that much longer, which is kind of the point you make in yeah. your book. What are the signs of a yeah. one of the more sophisticated bots out there at the moment? You know, I sometimes get, I sometimes make the mistake of going too deep into comment exchanges on Twitter, and I suspect I see them, but I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> spot them.
0: Well, that's the, that's a great point, actually. So you see them, but you wouldn't actually necessarily know them. And the, and the, and frankly, I see that I see these sorts of accounts probably all the time, but I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily know them. And I'm an expert in exactly this, so that's an indication of the fact that these accounts have become more, much more sophisticated over time. When we first began the computational propaganda project, we could identify most of the bots that we were looking for just because a lot of them didn't even have profile pictures, or they were uh, they were tweeting like you know ten times a minute. So when we were uh, tracking that we were able to really easily find out which were the more blatant accounts. Over time, because of restrictions put in uh, by Twitter and Facebook, so in part due to research that's come out of the computer science and social science community um, on bots, it's become much more difficult to track them. And so many of these more sophisticated accounts are really hard to detect. There are tools like uh, Botometer, which used to be called Boternaut, um, from the Indiana University, and those tools can help you to track Twitter accounts that are automated with quite a high degree of success however on other social media platforms it's really really difficult because oftentimes these accounts are not built to engage too much with people and they're quite systematic in how they do engage oftentimes and this is a really crucial point these bot accounts they're still not built to have effective conversations with people but they are really successful and they are built in order to stir up controversy to create polarization and to create political apathy and so you don't need to they still don't need to be incredibly sophisticated to be able to do that but is that about their
1: sort of ability to argue so i mean a lot of what i see out there is kind of just argumentative language that actually if you took it in isolation it's probably just a kind of an angry rant of a sentence, but because it's situated in the context of a yeah. particular political moment, is that the sort of thing that, that would be a warning sign to you?
0: Yeah, it can be a warning sign, especially when a comment is just dropped in by an account that when you go look at it doesn't really seem to have a whole lot of body to it. So, you know, maybe it doesn't have many followers and it's just and it has no profile picture and it only messages on one particular topic all the time. Although even that's not an indication that it's a bot account. It could be just a person or a troll. Oftentimes, like again, to use the language that I used earlier, there's a work to seed particular types of topics into these, into arguments or into discussions, and it's kind of just like coming in to a digital conversation, dropping the equivalent of a conversational bomb into the conversation, and then leaving, in order to rile everybody up. You know, the the offline example you might use is during the protests, you see a lot of people impersonating protests right now in the United States, and some of them are from the far right or from anarchist groups and what they'll do is you know they'll go and break a bunch of windows or light a car on fire and then basically leave and and by the time they leave everyone else is really riled up that's this idea but taken digitally and oftentimes bots are the mechanisms that get used to do that
1: and i can think of an example here in in the last few weeks we had um i don't know if you clocked this story but we had a a senior government advisor broke uh, the lockdown rules to to go and isolate after he'd been yeah. diagnosed with coronavirus. It was extremely controversial. Yeah. And within a couple of minutes I would say of that, almost minutes of the story breaking on Twitter. There was an attempt to put up an analogous story of a of an MP on the left in the UK who'd gone to visit his parents. Now it wasn't analogous but it it came up so quickly that I thought that someone's almost it's almost as if someone's had that in their back pocket. Because all they needed to do was use the name of this MP, it was Stephen Kinnock. And and you had on the trends within about half an hour, you know, his name's trending because he's there as the kind of the counterfoil to everybody's initial anger at this government advisor. And it did strike me that that, you know, everybody assumes that that's all bots promoting his name and so on. But actually only five or six people need to say it before everybody else starts kind of spreading the fire almost. And I think that's a, for me feels like a recent example of exactly what you were just talking about.
0: It's systematic. It can be really systematic, and it doesn't require bots a lot of the time to control this, these kinds of conversations. It just requires being thoughtful in how you want to control a particular conversation, um, and and seeding and then fertilizing the seed within a particular group in order to get a topic to trend or spread or go viral. Bots are just useful because they can amplify the content, or you know they're useful for other reasons as well. But they can amplify the content. Um, there's this kind of notion right now that bots have are are bygone they're not around anymore but that's absolutely not correct research uh, really recent research shows that uh the people who make and build bots are tend to be one step ahead of uh, the people at the social media platforms platforms working to stop them from using them and they're still being used in a big way during events like this it's kind of a it's 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 difficult as a researcher tracking this because you also don't want to uh, make everyone fearful that all the time anyone that they're talking to online is a bot because that's absolutely not the case. We've seen that phenomenon emerge in the United States where during uh, this presidential election and the last one, there's been name calling amongst the Democratic candidates, calling one another's uh, supporters Bernie bots or you know um, Biden bots, and in fact. In fact, it's just a way of trying to delegitimize real conversation online so I do want to point out that it's really important to be careful uh, in labeling accounts bots and think systematic you know think equally systematically about how we go about doing that and and when and why we do it and whether or not it's useful in certain circumstances because the actual really important thing we want to get to is like what what are the consequences of the uses of these things and also who's attempting to use them and why are they doing it and how
1: so that that's actually my next question, but before I ask it, I, uh, I just wanted then hypothetically speaking, if you were if you were a political strategist um, and you knew the ten uh, areas of greatest weakness or the ten the ten hidden scandals that you had to protect your political master from. You could, in theory, game out the minute that those scandals break, and have a strategy for what's the fastest way on social to try and defuse the situation, either by having a kind of analogous example mm-hmm. to point to, or the kind of what aboutery that you see in a lot of debates, like, well, they did this, but what about you know, what about your guy? He did that. So it, it, it is feasible that, as a strategy, planning for moments of scandal and how to try and defuse them. You could you could sit and think, okay, well, what would be the things we'd need to say on social quickly to try and steer the conversation? Do you think that's something that's happening?
0: Oh yeah, like absolutely, and and it's not just something I think is happening. It's something that I've discussed with political strategists and digital strategists. They say that they do, and that we have evidence that has that this is, has been done in the past, at least in the United States, but also in Britain. What you're talking about is is this this kind of hyper focus on the news cycle, and the goal of always attempting to create a foil to a given story to to kind of say that something is equal to something else and so the classic example that i always use when i give give talks is to say Uh, You know in news stories you oftentimes see people discussing global warming and you'll have a bunch of scientists talking about something Then you'll have a random quote from uh, some person that doesn't believe in global warming that that has a completely ascientific scientific belief Well, this is kind of the equivalent of that but in politics, you know You'll see like a story come up. That's uh, about a scandal or about some occurrence and then there's an attempt by uh, Various groups to inject a counter story to that to that scandal or that crisis or whatever it is, and the goal really is is oftentimes to get in the news media and um, pundits and other uh, you know well followed individuals online to spread that counter story. Um, the folks that we talk to, political strategists and others. They oftentimes say that once it goes to the mainstream news, that that's when it really gets is successful. Uh, and so it's not just an attempt to get it to go viral online or to have regular people talk about it online. It's also to get it to go into the mainstream report into mainstream reporting. And work by people like Joe uh she's actually joining um, my department at Texas soon. Actually shows that when the Internet Research Agency, Russia's uh, sort of proxy for sending out propaganda uh, during the 2016 election 2018 and, and in other elections around the world, many, many news organizations, including CNN and others, actually screen capped accounts that are now known to be Russian IRA accounts and use them as examples of angry people tweeting during the contest as if they were legitimate and real. And so there you go, you know, exactly what we're talking about.
1: Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to Bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And who are, you know, everybody knows that Russia does this. I mean, I think everybody that thinks about it probably assumes that China and Iran and actually, I guess, to some degree, the UK and the US, you know, this is a, but presumably this isn't something that just requires either state capacity or sophisticated political skills there's a range of actors i imagine mm-hmm. producing computational propaganda is that right
0: so actually it's it's funny you should ask that because in my next book i have i have a, in, in manufacturing consensus i have this idea of the democratisation of propaganda and the idea is that nowadays um, almost anyone can use social media to produce their own version of propaganda. We've seen really small groups in places like Iowa use bots and other tools online in order to, to actually effectively change communications about a particular candidate in a Senate race in Massachusetts. Like This is actually one of the earlier examples uh, from like around 2010. And so, uh, yeah, a lot of different groups can do this. However, it is important to point out that it's usually the really well-resourced actors like state governments and militaries and others, uh, corporations and things, that can can wage the most sophisticated and long-term computational propaganda campaign campaigns. Um, Samantha Bradshaw, who's a researcher at Oxford who works with Phil Howard, uh, put out a report uh, on cyber troops and the use of computational propaganda by governments. And I think that at the last count, they've done like two or three of these now. At last count, uh, they were up to around over 70 different countries uh, where the governments or some aspect of the government was making use of these tactics in order to, to, to a control conversation and, and to manipulate public opinion. So um, this is a really wide it's tactic it's not just it's not just something that's consigned to use by authoritarian countries so you know yes iran uses this and and russia does um, china has used it in attempts to manipulate Taiwan and Tibet, and there's there's growth, according to many people, in their attempts to do this abroad, um, although they tend to use mostly human labor, what's called the 50-cent RB, according to um, Gary King and Jennifer Pan's research. But also democracies do this as well. So yeah, there are there are plenty of Western democracies and other democracies around the world that are called pool. and this has been the case since I began doing this research.
1: And- I was going to ask you why social media companies are so bad at spotting uh, at spotting this. I mean, you said that often the, bo- the computational propaganda merchants are one step ahead. But, you know, in, when it comes to resources, social media companies aren't exactly lacking.
0: Yeah. So oftentimes the focus of a lot of computational propaganda research is upon sites like Twitter or Reddit because they have open APIs that allow lot uh, Application programming interfaces that allow researchers to download a portion of content about a given conversation, or hashtag, or something, and study it. So they, so Twitter sites like Twitter have been very democratic in attempting to allow researchers to study them. They were also democratic in the sense that they understood that there was going to be a need for automation by, say, like news organizations like the New York Times or uh, the Guardian to use automation to send out stories. They didn't, they didn't need people always doing that and so they made it possible for people to install their own software through, that, through those same kinds of APIs um, and a lot of those softwares were those types of software were bots um, but the problem was was that by allowing bots in the beginning of a site like Twitter um, and or on a site like Reddit or Pinterest that the problem scaled and that eventually it was only a matter of time really before people started using them for manipulation and in fact like you know you can point to things like spam email and the early days of Twitter like a lot of spam business corporate content about pharmaceuticals or whatever as being the precursor to the political manipulative, the manipulative political stuff that we saw. So um, the problem was always a problem um, in my, in my opinion, and it was something that social media companies tended to ignore. I think you could make a pretty convincing argument both on Twitter and on Facebook that also, that also, you know, where there's also a bots problem, even though they have a real name policy. There was so many bots on these platforms, it boosted their monthly active users and therefore, in a sense, boosted their valuation when it came to, you know, people thinking about the ways in, in which um, they were getting lots of clicks when they started to int- 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 introduce advertisements. I would say that a lot of those clicks and views and view things were coming from bots. And so it was pretty damning for them uh, when all of this came to light. I still don't think there's been a serious enough conversation on how the use of bots on these platforms might have absolutely, you know, might have, uh, sorry, <laughs> might have potentially inflated the valuation of these companies. Um, but now we've gotten to a, a problem where, uh, where we're looking back back at the design of a system that was flawed and which like in the words of people at Facebook people have actually said this to me when I've when I've talked to them they've said we're trying to build the plane while the plane's being flown And it's like, you know, you can't go back and put these things in the box. You have to actually try to deal with the problem is now it's it's really, really nearly impossible without a complete system rehaul to completely ban bots writ large on social media, even if you have advanced machine learning, even if you're fighting back with automation, because the system itself is so massive. I mean, you have over two billion users on Facebook and hundreds of millions of people on Twitter. Like, how do you go through and make sure that when you're going through, you're not actually kicking off regular people or, you know, you're not you're not engaging in in false positives or false negatives.
1: And so it sounds like this this territory might be something that you cover in your next book. But um, something that's cropped up in thinking in the last couple of episodes of government versus the robots has been thinking about how the the nature of the design of social media platforms can often feed into the type of dialogue or discourse that you get on them. And trying to think about how to how do you either um, reshape those existing social ecosystems or design new ones that have different incentives built into them, and whether it's possible to build in incentives that um, yeah. aren't also reflective of human nature, which is a kind of very big, <laughs> it's a very big question. And I won't ask you to answer it right now. But what what I do want to ask is, rather than looking back, a lot of what you've done in your writing is looking forward and kind of looking at the next frontier of, of issues we might face. And you've written in the reality game about some of the potential uses of ai in computational propaganda both to accelerate the the capacity of bots but in other ways as well what are the potential near near future use cases of ai that you see in the field of computational propaganda emerging you know whether that's whether that's emerging into the spotlight in the big election of this year let's hope
0: um or
1: elections in Uh the coming years
0: yeah, so um, AI is going to play a huge role, and and you're absolutely right. In the reality game, the conversation in one of the chapters, there's a whole chapter dedicated to this uh, about AI, kind of points towards the fact that AI is both a tool that will be used to fight computational propaganda but also to enhance computational propaganda. So on let's start with the, the bad side of things first you know uh, AI allows bots and you know other mechanisms of computational propaganda to become more sophisticated to become to become less reliant upon people and more uh, able to scale absent as much human oversight. We're still in the early stages of this. According to research from Stanford, and I point this out in the book, the average uh, AI or machine learning capable, um, like chatbot has the intelligence of a five-year-old. But if you have kids, you know that a five-year-old can still be quite manipulative. Um, so, you know, there there is still potential.
1: Some might say there are some presidents with, uh, with the age of a five-year-old as well, so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Some might say this, yes. <laughs> um, anyway, and so then on the other, the flip side of things, when you had Mark Zuckerberg sitting before Congress in 2018, what he was saying was over and over and over again, um, you know, over 30 times, he said, AI is going to be our solution to the problems posed by things like computational propaganda and disinformation. But it was really unclear in that conversation, uh, like how because they don't want the people launching the stuff to know how they're they're building their AI systems. They don't release a lot of information on it. Also, a lot of the information is proprietary, so they want to inf- release it then. And also, you know, they don't want to open themselves up to, to critique. Uh, and so there is still quite a lot of a path about how AI is being leveraged by the companies themselves, at least, to fight back. It's really clear that because of the size and scale of the problem, that there's going to have to be usage of AI and automation to fight back. Um, but it's still unclear how successful it is. Uh, there's been some successes, but I would say that uh, measured, we've had measured success. We haven't had like, we haven't gotten rid of the problem by any means at all. Um, but there's also a number of AI and machine learning oriented tools. I mentioned bottom meter. There's others out there that that are pretty cool, um, but that aren't a panacea either, because most of the time, the tools that are built, whether they're plugins or applications, are oriented towards tracking bots or disinformation or pro- other problematic forms of forms of, of propaganda or, or content, say trolling in one language or on one platform. Um, and so they don't really scale uh in a lot of ways um and there's not a huge appetite amongst say like the vc community to invest in these kinds of things because they're not tremendously profitable uh and that that's got to change yeah
1: presumably you know it isn't just the social companies that will be able to use ai to fight back there's plenty of resource being used you know whether it's by corporations doing dark pr or whether it's you know well well well-funded political interests who will be able to use ai to kind of um to pursue their own ends. And I was thinking, I was reading something you'd written about um, what you call geo-propaganda, which is essentially um, being able to identify Uh people's locations and then targeting them with messages in those locations. And I was also thinking Uh about... um, conversations we've had on the podcast before on government versus the robots on a conversation about political advertising where we talked about how ai can be used to create kind of hundreds of personalized messages depending on different data sets for different users um and i was thinking Um, about the kind of i was actually thinking about the combination of those two things so you know if, if you know that you've got a certain number of people at a major sporting event or at a protest and you've got their geographic location and you have ai that can Send them personalised content. You can be really quite. Mm-hmm. You can be really quite manipulative of what people are seeing on their phones at any given time, in almost in real time.
0: Yeah. Well, I think I think actually, nearly. Yeah. Almost real time. Like like really close to real time. um Just to put a finer point on it. Um, Yeah, so geopropaganda is something that's been used for quite a while, but we just haven't talked about it as much because it hasn't been as sophisticated as what we're seeing now um, with the rise of contact tracing and just, you know, sophistication of of AI systems and and also of of geolocation systems, like things like geofencing uh, and the ability to pair sets on people, uh, large data sets that have been collected over, over the years from social media firms or credit agencies or um, voter databases and things like that. And so while in, 20, in 2016, you had Cambridge Analytica kind of falsely claiming that they were able to leverage psychographic marketing, even though they were doing lots of other crooked things, they didn't really achieve the psychographic hyper-individualized marketing that they talked about. Well, this is more a step in that direction. So what we're seeing now is political campaigns drawing a, a digital uh geographic fence. And then when people come into that fence, they're tracked via their cell phone. Um, say that the fence is drawn around a, uh, here in the United States, I'm in Texas and sh- around a shooting range and you have, uh, gun rights activists, you know, hanging out there. Well, then you can target them with particular kinds of political ads, or if they go to, if someone's going to, um, Planned Parenthood or an abortion clinic, or if someone's going to church, you can target them with particular kinds of information. And it's not just that they're going to that one place. It's also that you can pair information on them being at that one place with a number of different other data points that, that are able to be gathered about that person, and then really, really target them with information or disinformation is the fear that we have about how and where to vote, or who to vote for, or things like that. Um, and so so the, the the situation is definitely evolving. And I think the article you're talking about uh, is, was in Foreign Affairs. And so it was a longer article where we kind of compared all the ways in which different this is happening in different countries around around the world and that it's quite a it's it's quite a serious problem because it's it's the confluence of computational propaganda surveillance and manipulative use of data and and i think we should all be pretty concerned about this and, and work to fight back against it
1: sure and it's not hard to imagine how that is 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 the is the kind of facebook data scandal part two and uh, you know yeah, i think exactly. I, would, I would think apple should be thinking quite hard about that right now but the um <laughs> The, uh, the other question I wanted to yeah. ask you, I'm kind of conscious of the time, but I did want to ask you about closed messaging apps. So it's pretty obvious that, you know, with WhatsApp being end-to-end yeah. encrypted, Telegram and um, various others, we're going to have a real problem with not even being able to see a lot of the information that's being spread. Um, it's obvious to see what the problem is there. Are there any potential solutions to it emerging?
0: Hmm. Well, so encryption is a really powerful tool for those working to retain privacy in restrictive regimes, but also in, 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 in democracies. You know, encryption, in the words of one of my researchers kind of crudely, is, is the condom of the Internet. Uh, and so encryption is important. But encrypted chat applications, yes, they are walled off and they are harder to study. And so, you know, the classic case right now that most people talk about when they talk about the problem of encrypted messaging apps in terms of disinformation and propaganda is India. We've seen the rise of Modi and the BJP party in India and a shift towards authoritarianism in what, you know, is or, you know, was the world's largest democracy. Um, and WhatsApp has been a crucial tool for BJP and Modi to try to control conversations and public opinion. And there's a highly sophisticated uh, network of what they call IT cells and people working uh, on behalf of the government in order to spread manipulative messaging and disinformation amongst uh, people who are spending time on encrypted uh, applications like WhatsApp. Um, That's not to say that the the applications aren't still really useful. It's just that the companies and researchers like me have to get better at figuring out how to how to uh, prevent misuse and Absolutely WhatsApp has, has prevented you know, forward mass forwarding of messages a couple different times in the last year, which is which has helped to to mitigate the problem. But part of the issue here that we're talking about, Jonathan, is that there's really close ties on encrypted chat apps. This is what what's called by the by political organizers relational organizing. Whereas on Twitter you don't know as many people um, that you're interacting with or you know them really like in a kind of a facile, like you know, basic way. It often feels, Sam, like there's... For for people who want to sort of fight back, you know, it's it's
1: clear that authoritarian forces, and I think to a degree you could argue right-wing generally right-wing forces, however useful left-right is in some contexts politically these days, have been more successful in navigating the kind of new information ecosystem. And if you want to fight back against some of the tools mm-hmm. that have been used, whether it's computa- whether computational propaganda being a really good example, you're sort of faced with a choice today is, you know, do you try and devise a more ethical form of deploying computational propaganda? Do you try and change the rules and regulations, which is hard to do when you don't have that much power? And if you if if neither of those things feel right, is there a third way?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is a. A pretty well-known report from the RAND Corporation, a think tank here in the United States that said, you know, the famous quote was, we can't fight the firehose of falsehood with a squirt gun of truth. And um, a lot of people, especially people in uh, the armed forces in this country and the intelligence services services in the United States and probably in Britain uh, by proxy, have taken this to heart. And so that means that there has been a lot of conversation about, you know, fighting fire with fire. Uh, and I've always been really, really reluctant to to say that this scene, the fear is that you just create more noise online. You just create less you know, less clear communication systems. You create you create ecosystems that are more damaged, less trustworthy. Um and so I'm not really an advocate for fighting computational propaganda with computational propaganda because uh, because it just, you know, there's so many case studies that I could point you to of where this has not worked. And it's actually, it's actually backfired. Um, the second idea is, you know, do we create more ethical systems? And I think that the answer is yes, we have to create new platforms. And in the reality game, uh, you know, I kind of hypothesize that the next wave of social media platforms that we'll see um, beyond Facebook and Twitter, and, and even beyond TikTok and others will be more ethically oriented and will be built with fail safes in them to prevent these kinds of misuses. However, right now we are stuck with the applications that we have, and they are really, really widely used. And Facebook is many people around the world's experience of what the internet is. You know, they, they experience the internet through Facebook or through WhatsApp. And so uh, we do have to work to rebuild and to prevent misuse of these systems as they already exist. And, and we're working in that direction. There's been some real successes, but we've got to step this up. Social media companies have to step up and, and do more. Researchers need to continue being able to show behavioral changes from this stuff because that's stuff that really hits hard. Uh, we also need to show this as a cultural phenomenon and, and reveal the people who are manipulating these systems and we can do that and we have been doing it. And Finally governments have to step up and have some sensible regulations surrounding these issues that don't not just stuff oriented towards levying fines against companies or things like that. We actually have to start making it criminal criminalized to spread, you know, electoral disinformation or to attack targeted groups. And, and technically it is illegal in this country. It's just that we in, in America, um, and it's illegal in the UK and, and throughout Europe as well in some ways, we just haven't really been able to prosecute it. Uh, very well. But there is a lot of reasons for hope. There is a lot of progress that's happening. And in the reality game, the whole conclusion of the book is about solutions to the problem as it exists. And the solutions are societal, they're technical, and they're, they're policy oriented. So there's no one size fits all and there's no one route. We've got to take all of the different tacks.
1: Great. Well, I'd like to end on a note of hope. So thank you very much for talking to me. It was a fascinating conversation, Sam.
0: Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. I appreciate it.
1: My takeaway from this week is how likely it really is that we could develop ethical social media platforms, either through the evolution of platforms that currently exist or demand for something new entirely. That's all for now, but my thanks as ever to Sky Redmond for her help with the editing and production of this podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, please leave us a review, tell your friends about it, or follow us on Twitter at govt underscore vs underscore robots.